They were the heroes from the future. Teenagers protecting the universe from those that would sow the seeds of chaos. Each had unique powers and abilities. And though they often had their differences, they came together to save the day as the Legion of Superheroes. Now you can be a part of their adventures and learn the history of the future in the Legion Clubhouse. This week on the Legion Clubhouse, slavery bad? Superboy number 220, The Super Soldiers of the Slave Maker. Published October 1976. Written by Jim Shooter with art by Mike Grail. Synopsis. Has Superboy turned on his fellow Legionnaires? We have new Superboy issues to talk about this week because uh, even though it's called Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes... Right now, it's still got that Superboy as the big as the big headline, the big part on the marquee. And, well, Superboy uh, is still the legal title uh, for shipping purposes in the Indicia. Superboy, Volume Twenty Eight, Number Two Twenty, published monthly. The monthly. Super Soldiers of the Slave Maker. Monthly, though. Monthly. I know this is now. Is this the first time that we start going monthly? Is this issue? This is the first monthly issue, yes, of Superboy and the Legion. Uh, we're not that far from another big transition, but this is really, I think, the point where things are like, ooh, and all of the people who say, I was a fan of the Legion when I was a kid who are our age and older, this is what they mean. Is this is this uh, version of the, the Legion, the Superboy and this, the Legion of Superheroes? No, this Heroes? very issue, Superboy number 220, with its uh, whatever happens in this really? issue. Really? No. I, I, can't ima- I can't imagine that a lot of people who are our age and older are like this. This is the point where I became a Legion of Superheroes fans. Yes, forget about that Tyrock stuff. Forget about those cool things where they were fighting the Fatal Five. This, this point right here where Superboy goes and slaps a lizard man. This is the point where everything clicked for me and I became a lifelong fan of the Legion of Superheroes. The Super Soldiers of the Slave Maker, I tell you, is the issue. Uh, but it starts on planet Murgador. Come visit. Can you imagine the the like tourist campaign for planet Murgador? Yeah, come come for the uh, the tall buildings. Stay for the enforced slavery. Stay because we're not letting you leave. You work here now. Yeah. So the uh, whole point of this issue is the Legion shows up on this planet, which apparently is a slave planet, only to find out that it is indeed a slave planet. And the only reason why the people have not risen up is because uh, deep in the heart of the of the planet is a giant nuclear bomb. And any attempts to disable it will cause the neighboring planet of uh, of uh, slave maker. Yeah. uh, To blow it up. Yeah. And. I find this really interesting because faced with this dilemma, the Legion of Superheroes actually has an argument about whether or not they should get involved in this situation. This seems to me like a situation tailor-made for the Legion to get involved and you know overthrow this clearly unlawful and unethical process. And yet half the team is like, no, we can't get involved. We'll get people killed. Yeah, principles, so principles. So it is. Can we figure out a way to defuse this bomb or keep the uh, mad slave monger on the other planet from blowing the planet up? Or should we just let these people 
live their life in slavery, even though the pro-slavery citizen of the planet is like, yeah, I don't really want my kids to die. So I guess we'll just accept slavery. (laughs) I I just don't understand any argument in this issue of, yeah, I guess we should just leave them alone. And the thing that's really frustrating to me is Ultra Boy. His main argument is not our principles. His main argument is not this is wrong or, you know, the prime directive, we shouldn't interfere with a sovereign situation. It's my girlfriend might get hurt. Ultra Boy doesn't want to act because he believes that Phantom Girl could get hurt. Meanwhile, Phantom Girl, by the way, is just pure steel in this. She's like, nope. Well, we're going to do this. She's not pure we, steel. We are against our principles to quit. We've got to try. And when the other team members start arguing about it, she phases through the bottom of the ship and heads for the planet's core to take out the bomb. I yeah, mean, that, she's that's why like, she's not pure steel, because if she was, they'd actually be able to hit her and she'd be <laughs> injured by the bomb. By so if you mean that steel. she has a a very firm and steel resolve, yes, I would agree with you. She's tough as nails. I guess the one who's literally made of steel is dead. R.I.P. Pharaoh lad. Yes, for now. Uh, the other question that I have in this, I have a couple of questions. One of mm-hmm. them stemming from from last uh, issue. But is Wildfire the conservative member of the group? Because he's like, oh, yeah, no, we can't get involved. Slavery's okay. This is all the way it should be, even though our... Even though these planets are members of the United Planets, we shouldn't do anything. Wildfire. Is, is he, is he this, the conservative version of, of the group? Because I know that, you know, when you have these political discussions or these process discussions or, uh, you know, what should we do discussions, there always seems to be a group that are pro something and the rest that are against something. It always seems to me that Wildfire and um, um, what's the other guy's name? Uh, that I, that I'm skipping off. It was a jerk last issue. They're just always Sunboy? no, not well. Sunboy's another one. So I'd put I'd put uh, Wildfire, Sunboy, and um, oh, what's his name? Wolfhead, Wolfboy, um, Timberwolf, Timberwolf. Yes, I always put those those three in a group of the conservatives. I don't think they're conservative, but what I think it is is Wildfire specifically is a contrarian. Wildfire is the loudmouth, and we're still at a point, uh, much like the cartoons of your and my youth, where in some ways the complainer is always wrong in these stories. So whatever position you know needs to be argued, Wildfire is always a natural fit to be, oh, no, you're wrong, you're stupid, because he's you know always ready to fight. He's always ready to argue. Timberwolf is stubborn. I would agree with you there. And Sunboy, I would say, is probably the one most, I think, consistently showing a conservative bent. Mm. But really what we see with Wildfire and to a lesser degree Element Lad in this issue is just more of a he's willing to go face to face and yell at Superboy. Yeah. So, you know, he's he's the contrarian. He'll yell at anybody. And sure. he usually gets used as that complainer. So, you know, much like Eric, uh, the barbarian or Eric, excuse me, the cavalier on Dungeons and Dragons, he'll always be the cowardly one arguing against the group. And he'll always get proven wrong because, again, the group is right. The complainer is wrong. Sure. So let me make a clarification here for people that are suddenly firing up their their Internet engines. Uh, when I say conservative, I'm not saying Republican. And when I say liberal, I'm not saying Democrat. What I'm saying here is someone who is conservative, who is, let's do the minimum amount that we need to do. Uh, let's, you know, re- save our resources. Let's not get involved in a fight that we're not, uh, that we don't want to be in. 
So anyone who's firing up their Internet engines and, and ready to fire off a nasty email about why you're always complaining about conservatives and Republicans. I'm not saying that the, the that uh, wildfire is a Republican. I'm saying that he's being very conservative. Uh, so, you know, yeah, wildfire is definitely a libertarian. Maybe. Oh, almost certainly throughout his history. Wildfire is just like pure libertarian and, you know, in, in a good way, not necessarily in a way where you're like, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things where wildfire is more about his ability to do stuff and other people's ability to do stuff and other people trying to stop him. You can't stop him. Don't even try. Well, He's wildfire. except that if he was true libertarian in this case, he would be arguing that we have to do something to stop the slavery because it is infringing on the freedoms of the people of the planet. But he's also arguing that Dinda's group is in the majority and Dinda, the leader of the people has said, don't get involved. Wouldn't that be kind of a libertarian viewpoint? These people have told us they don't need our help. They don't want our help. That's their decision. Let's let it go. I, I think universally, and this is kind of why I said this at the beginning of the show, slavery bad. Why are why are we having an argument about not you and I, but why are we having a discussion or an argument in this issue about whether we should let these people continue to be slaves to another group of people, which I think overall, for the most part, universally, we would say that slavery is bad, except that it feels like several members of the Legion in this issue are willing to say, eh, you know, it's better than they're being dead, which, again, is somewhat tone deaf. Mm, yeah, but you can almost see the argument they're trying to make. Which oh, sure. Is Let's that, not put people in danger. Let's go away right. and, and try to figure are, something else out. These people have told us not to get involved. It's their situation. They're happy with it. You know, it is it our place to get involved in this situation? And, you know, I, I can definitely see an argument for the other position. I don't necessarily agree with it. And I, I definitely agree that this is not the place to have that ethical argument because this is a clear example of slavery in action. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, even if you have a bunch of people that are saying we enjoy being slaves, please leave us alone. I think at some point you have to say no slavery bad and holding the threat of death by nuclear annihilation over a group of people's heads to ensure that they're happy with their with their slave masters is probably something you should put a stop to, which, of course, that's what Phantom Girl does. She saves the day. Meanwhile, uh, Superboy slaps uh, an underling. Uh, and uh, in the end, everything is good, uh, even to the point where they think at the at one moment that the planet did detonate. And that causes Ultra Boy to punch the lizard man in the face. Lizard punch. Because, his, his, again, his girlfriend is damaged. It's really interesting to me the way that Shooter posits these characters, because in a lot of ways, the position taken by Ultra Boy is a weaker one. What you might even consider, uh, you know, in previous issues of this book, certainly the ones that are less, uh, how shall we say, intersectional in their gender politics, you know, the position you might expect from a dream girl or a shadow lass. He's upset for emotional reasons that his partner might be injured. She is bound and determined to do what she wants. She's operating from a position of power and authority and doing what's right, regardless of whether the rest of the people here, who, by the way, comprise the most powerful members of the Legion. Yeah, you have literally uh, the five most powerful Legionnaires and, you know, Lightning yeah, Lad. Yep, you have Lightning Lad, Monel, Superboy. 
uh, Wild, Ultra Boy, Wildfire, Wildfire and Ultra Element, Boy and Lad. Element Lad. Yeah. Yeah. They can literally warp reality between the five of them. And they're like, should we? And she's like, bye. I'm going to fix this. You guys do what you want. I'm going to fix this. It's, I mean, it's a strong moment for Phantom Girl. Yeah. There's a comment between the two fractions of slaves, or two, not fractions, one-third slave, one-third slave. No, the two factions of slaves, um, where basically one of them is like, you know what, we should, instead of having a small group of people rallying and bringing in the Legion, we probably should, as a people, have all rallied together. Because when you look at it, you know, they're just being held by one crazy guy. And it kind of reminds me of, uh, I think, the end of... Uh, Star Wars Episode Nine, where it all feels like everything is bleak and hopeless, mm-hmm. and no, isn't it nine? No, it must be. Uh, it's not uh, eight. Yeah, where they're just like, there's more. You know, there may be. Um, it may seem like the odds are against our favor, but we have to remember that there are more of us than there are of them, and that would that would be in, in Episode Nine when Poe looks up and he sees all the people coming to the aid to right. free. The, all uh, the ships from all of the spinoffs showing up for a split second to yeah. make everybody go squee. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it, this kind of reminds me a little bit of that, where you have to be willing to stand up together and scream out that something like this, in this case, slavery, ladies and gentlemen, uh, right. is wrong, regardless of whether the culture says, yeah, we just kind of accept it because we don't want to get blowed up. Yep, they're going to stand up and say, I'm alien as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Our uh, second story in this issue, this is a two-story uh, issue mm-hmm. from uh, Carrie Bates this time, is half Dream Carrie, Girls Dream Girl's Living Nightmare. Once again, yeah. Dream Girl has a vision of, oh my gosh, the leader of this planet is about to be killed. We can't do anything about it because time is fixed and, uh, you know, we can't change history and, uh, you know, everything is predetermined. So uh, there you go. Man, life sure sucks to be Dream Girl if she can see the future but can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, poor Dream Girl. I feel like we've done not just the Dream Girl as MacGuffin part of this story, but I feel like we've done everything in this Carrie Bates story before. Because she's like, oh no, we have to get to this planet because someone's going to you know, kill the leader of the planet. Oh no, how shall we do it? I know, Chameleon Boy can sneak in. And pretend to be the guy and then draw out the murderer. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it didn't work. Oh, wait, it did work. Hooray. I impersonated you to save your life. I feel like we've seen all of this before. I'm, I'm sure it is, especially when it turns out to be Dream Girl is getting only half the message or interpreting it wrong. But mm-hmm. because and I really believe that Dream Girl falls into the determinism uh, philosophy just because of the visions that she has of the future and this unwillingness to understand free will. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that she is someone that believes that there is one linear timeline and not a multiverse. Boy, is she in for a big surprise <laughs> that every decision can split off into different timelines and those kinds of things. So I, you know, I'm not one who is um, a big believer in fatalism and predeterminism and determinism just by itself. Uh, although there are things that make you wonder, oh, look at all the things that had to happen for you and I to be sitting here recording this podcast right now, Matthew. Right. I'd have to get out of the car, walk in and sit down. I know all predetermined and you're definitely not a determinism person, right? Not usually, but I'm also not, you know, a precognitive from a planet of precognitives. I mean, the thing about dream girl, and this is really her whole shtick is she sees the future and she's never wrong. 
everything she sees is always true. But then the puzzle comes in how Carrie Bates shows us that she didn't get all of the pages. You know, it's kind of like Sketchpad. Do you ever see Sketchpad when you were a kid? Yeah. They show you three pictures, part one, part two, and part four, and you have to figure out that missing page. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the whole dream girl shtick at this point is, oh, no, a terrible future. What could happen? How do we stop it? We can't stop it. It's definitely going to happen. At what point? I mean, you would think that the precogs, whether they're here in this or they're in that uh, Tom Cruise movie uh, or wherever that they may be. You would think at some point someone would look at dream girls uh, culture and say, yeah, we could be picking their minds for all the stock market uh, picks and everything. But really, they may show, a you know, a 5000 uh, jump point jump in the stock market. But that would be immediately preceded or, uh, you know, immediately followed by a 10,000 point drop. Uh, right. So we really can't depend on, you know, the, the, the dream girl society to to give us any kind of value or worth. They're about as accurate as the weatherman, where the weatherman will say, eh, you know, there's a there's a 60 percent chance that it's going to rain in your area. Well, there's a 60 percent chance that it will rain in my area. Yes. And it may rain. Correct. But it may not rain on my house. So I would think that people in the future would look at dream girl and go, yeah. It's okay, but you have to take every proje- projection that she makes with a grain of salt. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, within the reality of the Legion, at this point, we do have magic that exists, and we do have things that aren't entirely rational and scientific, including Dream Girl's powers. But for the most part, we're kind of shown a society where science and that there's air quotes around that word Mm -hmm. is what most people are using to decide their their thing and so naltorian science air quotes again says that you know nerd godor is going to be killed by the way what a great name for an alien nerd gordor (sighs) i i I just have to let that wash over me nerd gordor now now i I just looked at it as nergador well, of course, you said that. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't put a big stigma on this guy who's brought peace to the galaxy. He brought peace to a corner of the galaxy. Thank you very much. Yeah, I don't think that the makes him a nerd. Demros too, but you know, the, the Legion sweeps in to find him, and in some ways, you know, we do get an interesting, almost id ego super ego argument between Brainiac Five, Dream Girl, and Chameleon Boy, where she's like, "Oh, this terrible thing's going to happen." We can't stop it. And Chameleon Boy's like, oh, this terrible thing's going to happen. I have to stop it. And Brainiac's like, wait, we have to figure this out. We have to balance this out. We know her dreams come true. Why Why are we getting involved? How are we getting involved? So it really is a weird kind of, you know, balance point for me. It's that Spock, Kirk, McCoy, uh, and, you know, except for the fact that Kirk is wearing a silver leotard. Yeah, I only think that any time that... Dream Girl makes a prediction. The only thing that goes through my head is, here we go again. (laughs) That's very true. And this issue does, you know, the second half of this issue, this story, I should say, does do that. It is a here we go again, ending with a chameleon boy save the day because destiny already chose its victim. And it really wasn't. I mean, the victim that was shot was actually a uh, uh, an evil version of (laughs) Nergador. And so by yeah, killing him, was... you actually you actually did the right thing. So by sa- if you would have saved him, 
it would have left the uh, the uh, evil impersonator in his spot. So, ah, man, do we kill? Do we? Is it okay to kill a a leader of a planet, or should we just interfere? Ah, all these moral deep questions that are asked in each and every issue. I don't know about deep, but they're definitely moral. If you enjoy the show, we would appreciate your support. You can find out more and become a Legion Clubhouse member at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Okay, I have a question about Colossal Boy. Okay. When he grows up, when he expands himself, when he when he increases in size. Yes. Is it a predetermined size? So like is he does he always can he be like a you know, a, a six foot tall person, and then when he turns on his growing powers, he always grows to twenty five feet tall? Or can he grow like six feet five inches? At this point in history, uh, as best I understand and can remember, Colossal Boy can grow from his normal size to any size he wants. We have yet to see any limitations. I mean, we've seen him grow big enough to pick up uh, a sailing vessel in one hand. We've seen him grow as tall as the Legion Clubhouse. We've seen him grow to pretty ridiculous lengths. And then we've seen him be, you know, eight to 12 feet tall, like a couple of issues ago where he used his powers to stretch across the ship and push both buttons at once. He's maybe 12 feet tall in that picture. So I think he has the ability to get bigger to an undisclosed degree in pretty much any increment that he wants at this time. Interesting, because I wonder if he is someone who is always got to be the quote unquote bigger man. So like if if Superboy at this point is six foot, if he mm-hmm. just grows himself a little bit larger to be like six foot one, he's like, yep, I'm still the <laughs> tallest legion. Still the, the tallest member here, or you know, if he if he has to go up against uh, Ultra Boy, who may be six one, if he just grows up like six two, is like, yeah, sorry, still still the tallest. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> do you think he does those kinds of those kinds of things to make himself feel feel taller, or do you think he uses inserts? I think he's you know colossal boy. He is uh, remarkably tall, even amongst the Legion at his normal height. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily put it past him. I mean, we eventually do see him kind of grow into a not necessarily dull-witted character, but more of an action-oriented character, not really a thoughtful kind of guy, more of a feelings and punching kind of guy. So I could see it, especially, you know, as we go down the line, we see his uh, deep friendship with Chameleon Boy. Mm-hmm. But we see him also bonding a little bit with Sunboy, who's kind of a schmuck. So you can see it. Now, I definitely I would say that that's true of the reboot Leviathan, because mm-hmm. that, that kid was a douche from day one. I mean, he's, he's, he's just a jerk. Okay. Uh, the letter column in this issue brings up an important point about issue 217. Yes, one we didn't even think about when the issue came out. Okay, which was what? So when we meet Laurel Kent pretending to be Elna... Yeah. And we meet her we find her whole secret. She says to Superboy, Yeah, I look very much like the woman you're destined to marry. And I said Donna Troy. And yes, you did say Donna Troy. And don't you wish you hadn't? No. But more because she looks exactly like Donna Troy. From the year twenty twenty, looking back and being probably at this point over twenty years of Superman and Lois mostly being married, 
it's it's difficult to look at this and think about this is 1976. This is roughly 40 years of Superman, and they've always kind of hinted and hemmed and hawed around, is Lois his true love? Is Lana his true love? This story seems to explicitly say, canonically, whatever that means, Clark and Lois are going to get married. Superman and Lois are going well, to marry per the canonical future of the Legion of Superman. I mean, you had a whole series called uh, Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane. And so right. usually after dating for like 40 years, you're going to probably end up marrying one another. So I don't know if that is a big surprise. And then I also you is. have and then also you have the Super Sons and you will have all of those uh, uh, Superman issues where uh, Superman is taking care of babies and, and Lois always in those, even though those were like, oh, my gosh, I had the most horrible dream. Um, even in those dreams, it's always Lois. So I don't know if it's a huge surprise to say, hey, your distant relative turns out to be the 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 offspring of uh, of Clark and Lois's kids. I don't know if it is that far of a stretch, considering some of the other things that were already going on during this time period. But I do agree with you, and I can see where your point is that, yes, there may be people that were like, oh, this is definitely the future. These two are definitely going to get married. But we've seen those those stories already play out before. So I don't know if it's that much of a shocker. And I would argue that in 1976 terms, it is very much a big deal because even in those Super Sun stories, they very pointedly made a point of never showing the boy's mothers. True. Well, they at least... never showed us who he married, Lois or Lana or Lori Lamaris. Yes, I was going to say, at least she doesn't have a fishtail, right? Exactly. And that's, you know, kind of the thing. This is, I think, the Legion of Superheroes uh, writers. And I don't remember if that's a shooter story or not. It seems like a shooter story. Uh, Either no, shooter or Carrie the, uh, said, hey, we're taking a side. Yeah. Yep. All right. And taking a side, listeners, you tell us. Is this a surprise? Not a surprise? Or... Eh. Superboy number 221, The Trillion Dollar Trophies. Published November 1976. Written by Jim Shooter with art by Mike Grell. Synopsis. A new villain threatens to chain even the mightiest members of the Legion. The Trillion Dollar Trophies. Trillion Dollar Trophies. Where we get to introduce to Charma and Grimdor when the walls fell. Oh, man. Fifty Shades of Grimbor. Good. Laird of Mighty. Uh, I don't know what to say about this issue. There's a lot to unpack here in this issue. Some of it, some of my concerns while I was reading this, I went and did some research. And I was like, yeah, maybe. Uh, here's what I will say. Hmm. It's weird that this issue has shooters writing about as purple prose as he can get. Mm-hmm. I like it, mm -hmm. uh, but it's noticeably different than the super soldiers of the slave maker. Yeah, it is. And I'm again, I do not believe that we should play into the fallacy of authorial intent. But I kind of wonder if we get into this story, if this isn't something that specifically appeals to someone in the creative team. And again, no judgment, but clearly Grimbor and Sharma are a BDSM couple. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, she, there I mean, is. She's literally wearing a slave collar and bikini. Mm -hmm. She is wearing bondage gear. He he has chains and he's got this leather suit and it's a whole thing. And his whole sh his whole shtick is he can chain up anybody. 
Yes. Uh, and so chains and and tying people up is definitely a big thing. And when they take down Shadow Lass, they put her in a gimp suit. <laughs> and I think they give it a name. It has a different name. Yes, it's, but it's uh... definitely a gimp suit. But here's the here's the thing. I started wondering, you know, is this uh, a you know, uh, a look into, you know, maybe shooters desires, uh, you know, the things that he is into. Right. And I, and I went around and I did find some instances where he gave, who did he give this to? Uh, one of his editors or someone that he had worked Anocenti. with. Yes. Uh, was one of the assistant editors. Yes. Gave her a bondage suit as a gift or some bondage wear as a gift. So, uh, I couldn't find anything where Shooter, you know, talks specifically about uh, any interest in BDSM, but that incident and reading through this definitely makes me think that uh, he might be into that that lifestyle. In the volume five, four or five, I think volume five, Legion, after Wade and Kitson left, so the third iteration, the three boot, there is a sequence where Saturn Girl and Lightning Lad are having a quiet interlude, and there's a very strong implication that Saturn Girl is asking Lightning Lad to dominate her in a romantic sense with his lightning. And I know that he was part of the group that wrote Avengers Annual Number 10, where Ms. Marvel was in a quasi-DS relationship uh, with, and this is the creepy part, with a character who turned out to be Immortus but was also her son somehow, it's a it's a bad story. Don't read it. Stay away from it. But, is, is Shooter also the one that was responsible for Hank Pym hitting? Uh, Shooter did, in fact, write the story where Hank Pym uh, struck his wife. But there's been there's some dialogue back and forth because Shooter says he wrote it as yeah, a the, slap. Yeah, well, it's and, an unintentional uh, slap that he was throwing his hands up in disgust right. and it just happened to hit her in the face. And Al Milgram drew it as yeah. a flat out strike. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Whether or not, you know, that was his intention, that was the way it went. That was the way it got dialogued and inked and sent out. So, yeah. yeah. Again, I don't know. I do know that, you know, there are people who have opinions about these things. And I do know that Shooter's name doesn't come up as much as another uh, Marvel stalwart when you talk about BDSM themes in comics. But his name does come up. So I always, you know, I... I it wasn't that long ago. Gail Simone said something on Twitter about how so many of the villains in comics seem to represent one of the creator's personal fetishes. Mm. Not saying that's true with Grimbor and Charma. I'm just saying that Grimbor and Charma's story has a lot more. It feels like a lot more meat than some of the stories we've seen in and around it. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, it feels like it's, you know, it's more, Purpley, it's more written, it's more dun dun dun. I really want to, you know, pull out all the stops, uh, metaphorically speaking. On yeah, this, no, so. I mean, they, uh, as far as the writing goes, the writing is is as purpley as you can get, uh, pretty much in in a lot of the descriptions and the way things are handled. Which, again, I don't mind purple prose. I think a lot of people turn their nose up at purple prose, uh, but mm -hmm. I rather I rather enjoy it because it makes it fun. It you know, throw as many adjectives in there as you want, and uh, that that <laughs> you're, really, you're a pulp fan though. Too. I, I do, I do enjoy the pulp. Uh, pulp novels and, and pulp stories and, and stuff of, of years gone by. So that stuff really doesn't bother me as much as it does some people. Uh, but I, but I was really surprised by the uh, overt uh, BDSM references yeah. throughout this issue. And again, as, as Matthew said, I don't think that there's anything wrong with uh, BDSM or uh, Dom sub relationships, providing that, you know, everybody is consenting in, in those situations. 
Uh, so I don't really have have a problem with anyone's, um, you know, sexual uh, um, Pro proclivities, yeah, proclivities or interests or, or those kinds of things. Again, providing that it's it's safe and, and legal and, and nobody's getting harmed. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a problem. So if if he really is into uh, the the bondage, uh, that's, that's fine. I don't have a problem with it. I was just really surprised that that was yeah. the the big standout thing. That even though all this other stuff is going on, as you know, here's here's a, a Charma who no man can harm her and wants to protect her. And Grimbor is I only want to enslave people. That dynamic, everything else that stands out was all the BDM, uh, BDSM stuff that that popped up. Yeah, and in a comic in '76, that is still very much aimed at kids, not necessarily the seven and eight year olds of the early Legion, but twelve to fourteen year olds certainly. I feel like it's noteworthy, not necessarily even a bad thing. But if you look at this throughout this issue, there is, you know, obviously the man is called Grimbor the Chainsman. Yeah. So there's going to be a bondage theme. People get tied up. But more importantly, his powers are all about dominance and super strength and overriding people and tying them up. And her powers are all about seeming so small and helpless and then manipulating your brain from that position of submission. And it's just, it really is an overt theme in this and we'll come to later Charma stories as well. Mm -hmm. Rimbor and Charma do recur. So it's interesting, you know, to just look at this and see what, for lack of a better word, they kind of got away with. I mean, she's yeah. literally wearing a collar. She's yes. literally wearing leather gear. And yeah. at the end of the story, she is bound with special shackles that he made for her. And the Legionnaires are like, well, he was clearly wanting to trap her too. And I'm like, yeah, that's what happened, Superboy. You're from you're from Smallville in the 60s. You may not understand oh, why there were shackles made specifically you, for her. You need to go into the uh, old magazine archives. I think Pulp Librarian was posting something this week or, mm -hmm. or maybe last week on um, kind of like Tinder of the day from like the 1950s and 60s and, and pictures that people were posting in these magazines and uh, sharing themselves. Uh, definitely, I think maybe it wasn't a very open thing in the 1960s in Smallville, but it was definitely a thing in the 1960s in Smallville. There you go. One thing I will say about Grimbor that I think is just glossed over in one panel. Oh yeah. I used to, uh, I used to cage all the terrible people in the universe. So-and-so, so-and-so Validus. Oh, that Validus. guy. And it's like, Oh wait, you, you were the one responsible for, you know, locking him up for a time period until, you know, he got out. Uh, so I, I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah. That's actually a neat little piece of Legion history because we see that, you know, we had, and it was an early Scherter story, we had that moment where these five criminals were unstoppable and they couldn't be chained up. And it was, but Validus was in chains when we first saw him mm -hmm. and he broke free. So, yeah, it's, it's almost like it's not necessarily a plot point or a, a, you know, a question that shouldn't have been answered, but it's one of those moments of, oh, yeah, that's kind of neat. Mm -hmm. Yep. Anything else that uh, stands out for you in this issue? Uh, Colossal Boy Still Needs Pants uh, yeah. definitely stands out for me. Charma explicitly refers to herself as a mutant. Yeah, and this isn't the first time that we've seen the word mutant being used in, in Legion, uh, a yep. Legion issue. Uh, which did make me go back and, and double check because of the whole bondage, bondage and fetish 
uh, situation that was going on between these two. I went back to look and see who came first, Jean Grey of the Hellfire Club or Charma. And it turns out Charma actually by about two years, two or three years. No, actually yep. four years at this point, 76 and 1980. So, yep. The Hellfire Club stuff is 1980 under Chris Claremont. But mm-hmm. it's interesting because as late as 84 with the debut of Jericho, DC was still regularly using the term mutant mm-hmm. occasionally in their comics. And not long after that, I think immediately post-crisis, they started using metahuman instead. Right, right. Because, you know, obviously because of the ascendance of the X-Men to, you know, big men in the neighborhood. But I just find it interesting that you just, in the middle of this book, you don't expect to see the word mutant in a Legion of Superhero title. It, it does stand there out. It yeah, it does stand out quite a bit. Oh, uh, and this issue does give us one important piece of information that I'd never thought to ask. Okay. What does R.J. in R.J. Brand stand for? Well, you know, when you look at his last name, Brand... Mm-hmm. You obviously have to say, okay, this is European uh, in nature. Uh, so if you think of a lot of the common uh, names that you would find in European culture, when you look at RJ, first thing that comes to my mind is René Jacques. René Jacques Rand. And it's not because we've been reading the Legion for 25 <laughs> years with that being common knowledge. Oh, no, no, no. It is only because it makes perfect sense within the context of this. And I agree with you. It does. But yes, for this, at this issue is where we first find that RJ stands for René Jacques, which is interesting because we don't find out for another couple of years that it's actually an alias. But when we do find out, you then ask yourself, why is he so very French in his aliasing? Uh, well, why wouldn't you want to be French? I think well, any, I don't any, know. You tell me. I think oh. any shape-shifting alien that would come to Earth would say the best way for me to fit in is to pass myself off as a French person. Mm, Cordon bleu, tricolore, Maurice Chevalier. Huh? <laughs> you know, if people are like, why is that guy acting so weird? Eh, he's French. Oh, okay. That explains everything. Yeah. Not not the yellow girl in the leather fetish gear. No, no, no. The weird guy is the French guy. Yeah, yeah. that's perfect. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I agree. We have come to the end of another Legion Clubhouse. Thank you, everyone, for hanging out with us. There is one thing that was mentioned uh, in the back issue of this of this uh, issue that I'm very curious of. They make mention of, if you remember the previous uh, episode, Matthew, where we were looking at that side panel, uh, mm-hmm. the cutaway of the Legion Cruiser. Mm-hmm. According to the letters column, somebody actually made a model, a physical model of this ship. Cool. And it appeared in the... DC fanzine, The Amazing World of DC Comics. I could not track down that picture because they did a whole photo spread for that for a particular issue. And I'm wondering if one of our listeners out there who's very knowledgeable on the Legion might have a copy of that. And if he he or she wants to drop that into our Twitter feed at Major Spoilers or at Legion Clubhouse, that would be pretty cool. Because I would like to see what the physical model of that looked like in 1976. Beyond that, Matthew, what did we mm-hmm. learn this week? We learned that RJ Brand lost a whole lot of weight since we last saw him, and I'm going to blame it on Nutrisystem. I think we also learned that uh, it's okay to let your freak flag fly. Right. And more importantly, we've learned Colossal Boy needs pants. That wraps it up for this installment of the Legion Clubhouse. Thank you so much, everyone, for checking us out. We will be back next time. And until then, I may be wearing pants, lad. 
and I'm Bridge and Tunnel Girl. The Legion Clubhouse is a production of Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC, and is produced by Steven Schleicher. Your hosts were Matthew Peterson and Steven Schleicher. You can follow Matthew at Mighty King Cobra and Steven at Major Spoilers. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Legion Clubhouse. If you have questions or comments, send them to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. I'm Jason Inman. Until next time, eat it, Grandpa. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.